Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Wednesday, August 26th, 2015. So today's episode technically is a light episode, but it's not light at all. Grab a Bible. You're going to need to open up to two passages of Scripture. First to Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 13, and then we're going to take a look next part after that of 2 Peter, the whole epistle. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We actually take the time to, you know, open up God's Word, take a look at it in context, to compare with the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, and self-help gurus, to see if what they're saying actually squares with what God's Word says, or if these people are teaching false doctrine, nothing that's in accord with sound doctrine, and teaching for shameful gain the things that they ought not to be teaching. That's what we do here. It's an exercise in learning biblical discernment. Part of the way you learn that, though, is by hearing what sound biblical exegesis sounds like, proper distinction of law and gospel, sin, grace, repentance, and the forgiveness of sins, and by learning, you know, what the original, you know, what the, the real thing is really about, it makes it easier to, for you to spot the counterfeit. So what we're going to be doing today, this is going to be a little bit longer of a um, light episode, if you would, and boy, I had to put light in, in, in air quotes here. This is anything but light. Uh, this past Sunday at the congregation that I serve up in near uh, rural Oslo, Minnesota, uh, the uh, pericope for the gospel text was Mark chapter 7, and I took the occasion in Sunday school then to kind of build off of the sermon uh, by taking a look at Second Peter, really talking about the primacy and the importance of knowing Scripture and not having secondary uh, sources of authority, uh, experience, traditions of men, things like that. And so the the two I the two of them build off of each other, if you would. And uh, like I said, you're probably going to want to take notes. This is going to be a long episode, a very important one, considering the state of the church today. So we'll get right into it. We'll begin with the sermon that I preach, um, the commandments of men or the uh, word of God is the question that you know I pose in uh, you know for the title of this sermon. So we'll get right into it. Here we go. The Holy Gospel according to St. Mark, chapter 7, verses 1 through 13. The Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were unclean, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews 
do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and the teachers of the law asked Jesus, Why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders, instead of eating their food with unclean hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. You have let go of the commandments of God and are holding to the traditions of men. And he said to them, You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, Honor your father and your mother, and anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, Whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is korban, that is a gift devoted to God, then you no longer let him do anything for his father or mother. Thus you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and you do many things like that. In the name of Jesus. Got to tell you, this is going to be a little bit of a ride today. Jesus is not mixing words. And there's something really important that we need to see in this text. And it's going to require us to do a little bit of historical background. So let's go back to our text. I'm going to actually be preaching from the ESV, but you should be able to follow along in the NIV. Here's what it says. Now, when the Pharisees gathered to Jesus with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. Now, we're going to pause there for a second, and let's do a little bit of confession. I grew up in a home where I was not allowed to eat dinner until I had first visited either the bathroom sink or the kitchen sink and washed with soap. My mom made it very clear that just sticking your hands in and baptizing them was not going to work. Although I did try to bend that rule every now and then if she wasn't looking. I didn't understand the importance of soap. This is not what this is about. It's important for us to know something. The Pharisees are usurpers. I've said that many times and I'll say it again. They are usurpers. Some of their earliest documents, there's a question in one of their catechisms, if you can call it that, And the question put before the Pharisees is, how many Torahs do you have? Answer from the Pharisees, rabbis, we have two. We have two Torahs. Now, you know what the Torah is. The Torah is the five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. According to the Pharisees, there are two Torahs. There's the written Torah, and there's the oral Torah. Their claim is that when Moses went up on Mount Sinai... God gave him the written Torah and the oral Torah. In their way of thinking, the written Torah is like the bones. The, uh, the written Torah is the bones. The oral Torah is the flesh. This is what they think about it. And so they have two sources of divine authority. And what's going on here is Jesus completely trashing. And I mean this. Trashing their secondary source of authority. If you don't understand what's going on with that, the two Torahs, the oral tradition, in which, by the way, when you read in your Bible where it says tradition of the elders, that's a formal title. It'd be like the name of the book, Moby Dick, right? Capital M, capital D, right? Tradition of the elders should be capital T, capital E. It's a formal title. 
Now, eventually, this gets written down, this so-called oral tradition, and it takes on several different volumes. you got the Midrash, you have the Jerusalem and Babylonian Talmuds, and then, um, oh, I forget the name of the last one. It'll come to me later. You know, I'm, I'm getting old. It's been a while since I've read some of these. But they're fascinating reads if you want to ever read them. So this is a showdown about where we can go to know that God has spoken. And Jesus definitively answers this question. Because if you think about it, here's the setup. Jesus is out teaching. In come the scribes and Pharisees from Jerusalem, which means they're from headquarters. These are not just your everyday run-of-the-mill Pharisees. These are the cream of the crop. These are the ones who count. These are the ones who sit around, debate ideas, and make decisions for people. They have authority. They've got pull. And they come to check out Jesus, and this is the thing they decide to go to war with Jesus over. So here's the scenario. They're out listening to Jesus. They listen to his... They're taking notes, taking notes, taking notes. Hey, let's go inside and eat. And, of course... When you walk in, there's a little basin and there's a little pitcher. And all of the Pharisees stop by the pitcher and they have this ceremony that they do. And the ceremony, basically, you take the pitcher, put your left hand in, palm down, pour water, switch over, right hand in, palm down, pour water, switch again, open up, left hand, pour water, take it again, switch over, pour water, and then you pray a prayer to this effect, Lord God, maker of heaven and earth, and king of the universe, we thank you that you have given us the command to wash our hands. And voila, you've done it. It's ceremonial. It's not about soap and cleanliness. It's a ceremonial washing, getting the sin and the icky-gooky stuff that you are exposed to out in the marketplace off of you before you eat. And if you think about it, I mean... All we're talking about here is a simple little hand-washing ceremony. This should be considered a secondary doctrinal matter, should it not? I mean, do people go to heaven or go to hell if they don't do this little thing? Well, Jesus exalts this, not from a secondary matter, but to a primary matter. So here's what happens. They go in, oh, there's the line of the Pharisees. No, 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 thank you, God. Next one, da, 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 thank you, God, right? And the disciples, they go straight from the door to the table. Hey, Peter, pass a chicken wing. How's that potato salad, Andrew? They didn't even stop and wash their hands. Why? Because Jesus told them not to. They don't respect this secondary source of authority because you're going to look long and hard in the written Torah for a command that says, thou shalt wash your hands before you eat. It's not there. But it's in bold print in the oral Torah. So that's the thing. This is about who do we go to for words from God that we are to obey. So with that, let's keep, go back. So when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. So the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to, capital T, the tradition of the elders. And when they come in from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots, copper vessels, and dining couches. By the way, the word wash there is a derivative of the word baptize. 
So they baptize cups, and they baptize entire couches, which, by the way, rules out that interpretation of the word baptizo that says baptism in the Greek means to immerse fully. No, it actually doesn't mean that at all. And I'd like to see somebody fully immerse and baptize a couch. That doesn't make any sense. So the Pharisees and the scribes, they asked Jesus, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? Capital T. But they eat with defiled hands. So there it is. Don't you recognize the tradition of the elders as authoritative, as binding on these men's consciences? These men are sinning against God because they're not following the tradition of the elders. Jesus turns on them hard. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, you hypocrites! For it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Boom. Drop the mic. Walk off stage. What Jesus is literally saying, yeah, that whole tradition of the elders thing, it's doo-doo. It's garbage. It's not binding. And notice his words from Isaiah the prophet. In vain do they worship me. These are not people worshiping Baal. These are not people out there sacrificing their children to Molech. They're claiming to worship the Lord. And Jesus says, through the words of the prophet Isaiah, they're doing this in vain. That means it's of no effect. It's not going to benefit them at all. Why? Because they're teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. So Jesus wasn't willing to compromise and say, oh, this is a secondary matter. Boys, go ahead and wash before you get in. It doesn't really mean anything, but we don't want to upset the Pharisees. Instead, Jesus' disciples were told, you skip that. The tradition of the elders is not the word of God. Do not observe this. And if they get upset, don't worry, I'll I'll take care of it. And he does. So Jesus says to the Pharisees, They are worshiping him in vain, teaching his commandments the doctrines of men. And then Jesus says this, you leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. Now this is where it's going to get a little rough. Christians of all stripes do this. Don't think that The differences between Protestants and Catholics is that Protestants, oh, they're sola scriptura and Roman Catholics, you know, they follow the traditions of men. Well, nowadays, Protestants have their own traditions that are every bit as dubious as any some of the crazy practices of the Roman Catholics. So let's just get this out there. Every Christian of every stripe is guilty of this. So we can point to the obvious. Nowhere in Scripture are we told to pray to Mary to the saints, to pay the Roman Catholic Church money for indulgences to spring our dead relatives out of purgatory. Nowhere nowhere in Scripture does it say that the Pope is the vicar of Christ. We can all point to the obvious and say, well, yeah, those are traditions of men. And in Roman Catholic circles, some of these things, refusing to do them is considered a mortal sin. And if you die, apparently, with, you know, having con- you know, committed a mortal sin, 
and not confessed it and been absolved, well, then you go to hell. These are commandments of men. But don't think that we Protestants are off the hook here. I've grown up in Protestantism. Y'all remember the movie Footloose? Remember that movie? It, was, it hit way too close to home for me. You know, I grew up in churches similar to what was going on in that story, Footloose. Remember John Lithgow's character? He was a preacher. And, of course, it was a small town. And this guy ruled this small town with an iron fist. So much so that the, the local public school couldn't even have a dance. Because apparently that was forbidden by God. But you're going to look long and hard in the Scriptures to find a commandment that says, Thou shalt not dance. And yet I grew up under that. I attended a school where I was not allowed to have a dance. And you know what we did? Senior year, parents got together and we found a location and just didn't let the faculty know and we had our dance. And it felt good. felt good. Why? Because it's oppressive. It's absolutely oppressive to be told with the authority of God that somehow I'm sinning when there's no commandment that says I can't do that. Now, I understand Norwegians don't dance just because it's a cultural thing. But that's a different thing altogether when you put God behind it. But we also do the same thing when we say, well, if you're truly a Christian, you would never drink alcohol. Now you have the freedom to drink or to not drink. What you do not have the freedom to do is abuse this good gift of God and get drunk. That's the one thing you do not have the freedom to do. And if you're not convinced, Scripture makes it very clear, read the, you know, the letter to the church in Corinth, the first one, that they were getting drunk on the communion wine. It's tough to get drunk on communion wine if it's grape juice. Okay, You'd have to drink a lot of it to even approach inebriation, and you'd probably blow up first. Okay? So nowhere in Scripture is there a prohibition that says, if you're truly a Christian, you would never drink. Now, if you don't want to drink, you are free to. And if you want to drink, you are free to. What you're not free to do is abuse this. Scripture is clear, Romans 4.15, where there is no law, there is no sin. Where there is no law, there is no sin. But see, I am convinced that the reason why people make up their own commandments is because they, when they read the written law of God, they realize that's really hard. Because God's law not only nails us regarding the things we do, it nails us regarding the things we don't do. It regards us regarding not only our deeds, but also our thoughts. And so it's a lot easier to make up your own law and say, well, I'm a Christian because I don't do this, that, or I do this or that. And it has nothing to do with what's in God's law because then that becomes keepable. Whereas God's law, man, when I read it, it nails me every time. And let's call this what it is. When you make up your own commandments and tax God's name on it, there are two commandments being broken. Two, the first commandment is you shall have no other gods before me. You've created your own God. That's called idolatry. And it doesn't matter if the name of your God is Jesus. 
Now, I don't know if we have this at our mall, but have you all seen those shops, the Bill the Bear shops? Okay, have you heard of This is like a scam, like you wouldn't believe. If your daughter ever gets a gift certificate to like Bill the Bear and you have to travel to go to a Bill the Bear shop, get ready to drop some major cash because that little $25 gift certificate, that's called a down payment. All right. But the way this works, the way this works is you go in and you get to pick all the different little things that you want to have for your bear. You know, it has a heart and you get to pick the fur and the face and then the clothing and the accessories. And at the end, you need financing. (laughs) Right? Now, that's the metaphor. Here's how people do this nowadays when it comes to their religions. It's called the Build-A-God Shop. You walk into the Build-A-God shop and you have this smorgasbord of options. The God I believe in, well, God is love. So my God is love. The God I believe in, well, he'd be gay affirming. Well, maybe he wouldn't even be a he. He might be a she or an it. The God I believe in would be Republican or Democrat. The God I believe in would be this, that, or the other thing. And at the end of it all, you get to name, remember, you get to name your bear in the Build-A-Bear shop. At the end of it, well, at the end of this little thing at the Build-A-God shop, you get to name your God. And you know what people do? They always name their God Jesus. Whether it's male or female, whether it sounds like or reflects the real God at all. So the two commandments being broken, you shall have no other gods before me, it's idolatry. Second commandment's being broken, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. When you take your commandments, your ideas, your doctrines, and you slap God's name on it and put his authority behind it, you are blaspheming God. You are stealing his name to deceive people. It's exactly what you're doing. It is a horrendous sin. One that lands people in hell. And you think about this. Read the Gospels. Jesus reserves his harshest criticisms for the Pharisees. Those who worship God in vain, teaching his commandments, the commandments of men. And here's the thing. We've all done this. None of us is free from guilt on this. We all have this sin on our hands. When you come to the Scriptures and the Scriptures say something, you say, yeah, I don't know if I can believe that. Or you find a way to philosophically work your way around it so that it doesn't mean what it says. Or you don't bend the knee. You don't believe. We're all guilty of this. And this is a terrible sin. Because it's a sin against the first table. Think about that. First table of the law has to do with our relationship with God. Second table has to do with our relationship with others. When you sin in this category, first table, you are sinning against God himself. And you are treading on thin ice. History, as well as Scripture, is full of examples of men whom God has hardened their hearts because of these sins, and they go to their grave impenitent, which means they go to their grave And the next thing that they do, as soon as their eyes close here, they find themselves in the flames of hell. And they will never get out of it. Grievous sins. Let's continue with our text. Verses 9 through 13. I'm going to point something out. 
I'm going to read it, and I want you to pay attention to the interplay here because we learned something about the doctrine of inspiration of Scripture. And here's what I mean. Jesus is going to use two terms interchangeably. He's going to talk about commandment of God, and then he's going to say Moses, and then he's going to say word of God. Watch how he does this. Verse 9. Jesus said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God. Notice, commandment of God. In order to establish your own tradition. For Moses said, so notice, commandment of God, Moses said, honor your father and mother, but whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Actually, the Greek there is wonderful. Die the death. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, notice it says you say, tells his father or mother what you would have gained from me as Korban, that is a gift given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God. So notice, commandment of God, Moses said, word of God. See what Jesus did there? Who wrote the Torah? Moses. Moses wrote the Torah. But Jesus is saying, even though Moses wrote this, these are not Moses' words, these are God's word. And that's the idea. Second Peter chapter 1, verses 16-21 through 21, kind of fleshes this out. And Jesus does this masterfully, pointing out what we understand about Scripture. We know, for we did not follow cleverly devised myths, Second Peter 1, 16, when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. For when He received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to Him by the majestic glory, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place. Notice he's pointing people to the Scriptures. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Spirit. The written Word of God, despite the fact it has human authors who pen these things, they're not writing their own words. They're writing the very words of God. This is why Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3, all Scripture is theonoustos, God-breathed. The only place you can go today, and I mean this, with, and know with any certainty that you are hearing words from God is the written text, period. Now, let me show you some of the warnings in Scripture about adding to God's words. Proverbs 30, verses 5 through 6 Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Do not add to His words, lest He rebuke you and you be found a liar. Deuteronomy 4, verses 1-2. through And now, Israel, listen to the statutes and the rules that I am teaching you. And do them, that you may live and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord your God, the Lord your God of your fathers is giving you. You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take away from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I have commanded you. The Pharisees disobeyed God, and they added to the Scriptures. Many people do this to their own demise and to the demise of their followers. Everything that I command you, Deuteronomy 12, 32, everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take away from it. Scripture is clear on this. 
And now let me remind you of what our Old Testament text said. Isaiah chapter 29, verses 12 through 14, and then 18 through 19. The predicament in Israel at the time in our Old Testament text was this. Because of this, the people draw near to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, while their heart is far from me. Their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things. Now watch what happens. Here's the turn. So the Lord, speaking to Israel through the prophet, says that these people honor me with their lips, and they're being taught commandments that are the commandments of men. And here's what God's going to do to solve the problem. He says, I will do wonderful things with this people. With wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise man shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Verse 18, in that day the deaf shall hear the words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. What's the solution to the commandments of men, according to the prophet Isaiah, is that God's going to do a wonderful thing and He's going to open the eyes of the blind through the words of a what? A book. And we have that book. And at the very end of that book, in the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verses 18 and 19, it says this, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to them him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of the prophecy of God, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. The solution to the commandments of men is found in a book. That book is called the Bible. It is the only place you can go today with certainty, and hear the words of God. If you want to hear God speak to you, read it. If you want to hear Him audibly speak to you, read it out loud. Don't be going to the crackpots claiming to be prophets. Don't be going to those who claim, oh, we have an oral tradition. Oh, we got the other teachings of the apostles that were not written down. Hogwash. Jesus is clear on this. We are to go to the written word. Trust and believe it. And those who are speaking to us and telling us these other doctrines that we cannot find in our Bible, they are liars. They are deceivers. They are blasphemers. God will deal with them. Listen to the words of the book. Study the book. I guarantee you, if you apply yourself to trying to master that book, it will master you. And that's a good thing. You will never be able to master it. A lifetime of study is just not enough time to master this book. But you can know with every turn of the page that every word was breathed by God, the Holy Spirit. And it's there for your edification, for your instruction. And those are the things that God wills for you to believe, teach, confess, and hang on to. All that other stuff, you are not bound to keep it. In fact, when somebody comes along and says, oh, we've got this oral tradition that says you have to do this if you're a Christian. Pastor, prophet, so-and-so said you've got to do this. You know what you have to do as a Christian? You have to do the same thing the disciples did. Don't obey it for their own sake. A lot of law here. We've dealt with two very serious sins. I know this from the book of Hebrews. Long ago, many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. 
But in these last days, God has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed to be the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. And here's the good news. That despite the fact that these sins, idolatry and the blaspheming of God's name, are sins against God Himself, God is rich in mercy. Christ has bled and died even for these sins. God placed these sins that you and I have committed against the first table of God. He's placed them on Christ. And Christ has bled, died, suffered, down to the dregs, the wrath of God in your place for all of your blasphemies and for all of your idolatry. And God wants you to repent, to change your mind, stop exalting your ideas over His Word. You are the clay. He is the potter. Clay will not say to the potter, yeah, I'll believe what I want to. I'll be what I want to be. Silly clay. So repent. Believe that God is right and that you are wrong. Trust Him. Believe what He says. Start with the words of the Gospel. Christ bleeding, dying for your sins. Do not believe the lies of the devil, your wor- the world, or even your sinful flesh that say, yeah, I don't think God can forgive that. That's a lie. Christ bled and died for that sin. Believe the forgiveness of sins. Believe what Scripture says regarding your baptism. That you were, when you were baptized, you were buried with Christ. You were raised with Christ. Your heart was circumcised by Christ. Your sins were washed away. And this happened to you. Believe those words. Believe the words that you hear in the Lord's Supper when I speak Jesus' words on the night that He was betrayed. When He took bread and said, Take, eat, this is My body. Take, drink, this is My blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Believe those words. Tell your reason to be silent. Stop listening to philosophers. Believe what Scripture says. This is what we're called to do. So repent. Be forgiven. Christ has bled and died for these sins. And then bear fruit in keeping with repentance by only listening to the written Word of God. That's the only place you can go today to find the words of God. Trust them. Believe them. Cherish them. Write them on the doors, posts of your house. Scribble them on the walls. Put them on your mirror. Meditate on them. These are the words of eternal life. In the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to go to the Sunday school lesson that I delivered on Sunday, looking at Second Peter. So get ready for that. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com. Or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back. More teaching. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We will be right back. We don't need to rethink Christianity. We need to rediscover it. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Oh, 
This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture, I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down. 
Click on the ad banner and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms and rental cars today. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to doubt extra-biblical sources of doctrine, you know, like personal experience or traditions of men, which is a good thing, by the way. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says Donate. The other says Join Our Crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $8.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so by clicking on the donate button or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344 Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support because we truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, the rest of the program will be without commercial interruption. And uh, we are continuing kind of with the, the, the two things that build off of each other. We just heard the sermon on the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, verses 1 through 13, Commandments of Men or the Word of God. And now we're going to take a look at the epistle of Second Peter. Here we go. All right, let us pray. O Christ... Our Defender, protect us from those whose plans would subvert your truth through heresy and schism, that as you are acknowledged in heaven and on earth as one and the same Lord, so your people gathered from all nations may serve you in unity of faith, for you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. All right. Have any of you ever heard or even thought or maybe even taught that, listen, you know, this whole idea about sound doctrine, that's all head knowledge. And we as Christians, we need to have heart knowledge. Have any of you ever heard these distinctions taught this way? What was the first part, knowledge? Yeah, head knowledge. Yeah, yeah. doctrine is bad because doctrine is head knowledge. Doctrine is bad. Theology is bad because that's head knowledge. What Jesus is really looking for is heart knowledge. You sit there and go, <laughs> you say fooey. Okay, all right. Yeah. I've, it, well, right. You know, Jesus says things like, "Out of the heart come all kinds of sin." You know, it's what it's what comes out of the heart that makes somebody unclean. That's next week's pericope, by the way, in Mark seven. It's not what goes into you that makes you unclean; it's what comes out of you that makes you unclean, and it comes out of your heart. And of course, then you sit there and you go, "Heart knowledge? What on earth is heart knowledge?" And yeah, what is the cash value of such a phrase? Work with me here for a second here, because if we're talking about thinking versus feeling, I think that's kind of what the distinction is, right? I don't know about you, but my feelings have a tendency to deviate from thought. Does this happen to you too? Okay. You know, sometimes you feel something really bad and your head's going, knock it off. You know, you know you're, you're not being rational here. Sometimes 
my feelings can lead me astray. And of course, we all we kind of live in a society where feelings are sacrosanct, and yet feelings can be wrong. But try that out on somebody sometime. When their feelings are really wrong, you sit there and go, you know, your feelings are wrong on this. You'll hear the explosion probably from Fargo. Okay. I'm just, you know, I'm just saying, people of Fargo will be going, whoa, what was that? The windows just rattled. You know, was that an earthquake? What was that? Right? Yeah. 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 Somebody just said that somebody's feelings are wrong. Feelings can't be wrong. Oh, yes, they can. And, you know, you, you think about, you know, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount talking about adultery and the fact that adultery is not just something that you do, it's something that you feel, right? It's something that begins in the heart. Well, the reason I'm bringing this discussion in to kind of begin with is, is that it's important for us as Christians to have our distinction and uh, understanding of the importance of sound doctrine be grounded in what Scripture says. Not what some theologian says, not even what Luther says, um, or a church father. The idea here is, is that Scripture actually tells us the importance of sound doctrine. And you'll notice, a few weeks ago, we talked about the book of Jude. We went through the, you know, the, the epistle of Jude, short little epistle. We're going to spend a little bit of time in Second Peter, especially in light of the sermon today, where we work through uh, the, the, you know, the distinction between you know, the Pharisees, the tradition of the elders, and how Jesus put the emphasis and basically said that secondary source of authority, those are commandments of men. And keep this in mind. Scripture is clear that the devil just continues to harass the church. Where there is a church, the devil's going to harass it. And he harasses it not only through violence and bizarre, bizarre things like that, but he sends his people to come and twist the truth to teach things other than what Scripture says. And I kind of work from this assumption. If Scripture makes a big deal about something, I need to think it's a big deal. Does that make sense? If Scripture doesn't make a lot of something, maybe I don't need to overplay that hand. Does that make sense? The idea here is is that you know, we, we as Christians, we talk about the importance of sound doctrine. Well, let's adopt the same idea about sound doctrine and false doctrine that Scripture has. And these are passages, these are sections of Scripture that a lot of people don't spend a lot of time on, which I think is to their detriment. When they come up, then come up with these ideas, well, you know, you know, uh, Chris, you know, you're just awful cranky. And, uh, you know, you have a lot of head knowledge, clearly, but you clearly don't have a lot of heart knowledge. That be, if I had a dollar for every time somebody said that to me, I would be a millionaire. So, I mean, seriously, it's part of the hazard of, of being a theologian and a Christian apologist, especially if you're doing any kind of comparative doctrine within the visible church. It just kind of goes with the territory. So we're going to take a look at Second Peter, an entire epistle, especially that second chapter, really focused in on this problem. And Peter, just so you know where he's at, he's in jail in Rome, he's about to die. That's where he's at. And uh, any any of you know the details of Peter's death? Anyone know those? Crucified upside down. Let me kind of give you the idea here. Is that we know from church historians at the time that um, Peter and his wife were both crucified. She went first the day before him. And... Um, he got to witness that and 
Um, one church historian records that his words to his wife were, remember the kindness of our Lord. Remember the kindness of our Lord. So he gets to see his wife be crucified, and then the next day he goes. He was crucified in a place called the Circus of Nero. Now, um, you know what a hippodrome is? Okay. Back in the day, they didn't have NASCAR, you know, but they had chariot races. And there was a place where there was a, you know, they held chariot races during Nero's reign. It was called the, the Circus of Nero. So, you know, it was kind of this elongated, you know, track, if you would. Very dangerous sport. Lots of people lost their lives doing it. And Peter, he was crucified in the infield of uh, Nero's uh, circus, which I think is an appropriate name now that I think about it. In fact, um, have you all seen any photographs of, you know, outside of uh, St. Peter's in Rome where they have that big open plaza, you know, when the, the Pope comes out and he... And he, you know, he does his thing, you know, that, that, that big area that, right there. There's a, an obelisk. You know what an obelisk is? You know, it's, it, the, the Washington Monument is an obelisk. There's an obelisk there in the center of that plaza. And that was the obelisk that was next to Peter while he was being crucified. Okay? That was Nero's obelisk. And so there's fascinating things that kind of go along with this. But as Peter's being, you know... Getting, they're getting ready to crucify him. He has a fit and basically says that he's not worthy to suffer and die the same way Christ suffered and died. You know, his, you know, his own sin, he says that he's not worthy of it. And so they said, fine, have it your way. We'll do it different. And they crucified him upside down. That's how he got crucified upside down because he didn't think himself worthy to die in the same manner that Christ died. As a result of it, it took him several days to die. And while he's upside down, crucified, they're holding the games. And they're having, you know, these uh, chariot races. And Nero was actually one of the participants in it, the way the history goes. And so those are the details of how he dies. And this epistle is written like his, this is his last. And he's about to go to his death. Why was he, why did this happen that he was jailed? For preaching Christ. Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, the, the Romans interpreted the message that Jesus is Lord as being subversive, as, you know, because Nero is Lord. Nero is king. So they heard the allegiance to Christ as being politically subversive, and part of that had to do with the fact that Rome still had this idea that the emperors were, in a sense, God and divinity. And you had to pay homage to them and worship them, and Christians wouldn't. This is, this is part of what led to the persecution. So think of it this way. If we were to talk about, like, you know, you're getting ready to die. You, you know your execution's coming, and th these are my last words to you. The words of somebody who knows they're going to die... They're going to talk to you about really important things. So think of it like that. This is like last will and testament. This is like, I'm about to die. I'm about to go. These are my last thoughts. Remember what I'm saying here is the way he's talking. So here it says, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Oh, I could preach a whole sermon on that text. Notice here that you Christians have a faith that has an equal standing before God as the faith of Peter. There goes this whole 
pantheon of saints, right? You, because you are in Christ. And notice what he says, by the righteousness of our God. There's the righteousness of God given to us by grace through faith and our Savior Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. Now, real quick here. Loaded phrase, partakers of the divine nature. Let me tell you how the church has historically understood this statement. Where do you partake of the divine nature? Answer, Lord's Supper. Be a partaker of the divine nature. You partake of the divine nature when you come to the Lord's Supper because Christ is truly present there. So his divine power has been granted to us that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises that so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Over and again, and I find it fascinating here, that Peter and Paul both talk about our corrupt sinful nature and its sinful desires. This is, I mean, this shows something that's kind of important here. One of the ways in which people deceive is they teach, no joke, this has been something that's been in vogue since before the 20th century, that Paul is the creator of Christianity, not Jesus, and that there's different Christianities. Paul's Christianity is different than Peter's Christianity, and John's Christianity is different than the both of them. They all have different, they have different Christianity. That's nonsense. There's one church, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, and you'll see the... the the fact that these guys, their message, they're the same. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. Notice that virtue doesn't give you saving faith. Virtue is the thing that happens because you have faith. So with, uh, with virtue and virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. All of this is because of the gospel, because you are in Christ. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Yeah, a Christian that doesn't mortify their sinful flesh. A Christian who lets the desires of their sinful flesh have reign in their life makes them unfruitful. And Peter says that person's blind and forgets that he was cleansed from his former sins. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, for if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. For in this way, there will be richly provided for you you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Therefore, I intended always to remind you of these qualities though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right, as long as I am in the body, to stir you up by way of a reminder, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. And I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. So notice, he's anticipating his death. It's coming. 
And he's going to make sure that the things that he's spoken, the things that he's taught, that they will be preserved. And this is preserved in this letter. For, and here's the reason why, this is fascinating. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. And so here's the idea. Jesus, in his wisdom, has made it clear that we are to know about Jesus not directly. He doesn't come to us directly. He comes to us through the preaching of the apostles. So when Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing and teaching, notice that that's specifically given to the apostles. The apostles are still discipling today because we have the apostolic message. They were eyewitnesses of these things. And Jesus says to the apostles, the one who hears you hears me. There's no way to get to Jesus except through the apostles, which drives the world crazy, which is one of the reasons why every Christmas, every Easter, the History Channel has these things where the historical Jesus, can we actually find out who Jesus really was? Oh, and the reason why is because of the Jesus that's presented in the Bible. He's a miracle worker. He claims to be God. He walks on water, raises the dead, gives sight to the blind. That has to be the Jesus of mythology, right? There has to be a, the real Jesus couldn't have done that because, well, we live in the age when we have smartphones. And that means you can't believe in a Jesus that does these miracles, right? And so that's why they do these things. But notice here, Peter, through the Holy Spirit, who inspired him to write these words, we did not follow cleverly devised myths. Everything written in the Gospels is history. It's eyewitness testimony. When we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father... And the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. This is a reference to the experience that they had on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember the account? They ascend up on the mountain. Jesus has Peter, James, and John with them. And then, boom, there goes the glory. Jesus lets it shine through. And, and then Moses and Elijah come and talk with Jesus to talk about his exodus, is the way the Greek says it. Talk about his exodus, his departure. And so this was their experience. And then they heard the voice. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. And notice that that was quite an experience. And what Peter is doing here, he's making a contrast between their experience and something that's even more sure and more certain than experience. And that's the written word of God. Do you have a question, Mark? Yeah. Roy has under the teaching, but it's a question of history. Did, um, did the Romans know? Because Paul wrote from prison also. Mm -hmm. Did they know these guys were writing? Yeah, they didn't have a yeah. problem with it. Yeah, they were like under house arrest. Oh, okay. Yeah, but still in chains with a guard. Yeah. It, it, you have to keep in mind that they, they weren't considered to, they weren't like murderers, you know, or robbers or things like that. These were, you know, Men who were known for being meek and loving and kind and, you know, not seditious in a way where they were causing an uprising, but, you know, so they they were kept, you know, under house arrest. Oh, yeah, they were they were kind to you prior to giving you this death sentence. And then once they executed you, they made sure that you experienced the most exquisite suffering and pain. So, yeah. So notice the contrast here, then. The contrast is between 
his experience, and he's going to point you to something that's even more sure. For we received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him by the majestic glory. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard the very, this very voice born from heaven, and we were with him on the holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you do well to pay attention. Now, this is a slightly convoluted translation. I want to see what the NIV does with this real quick. Hang on. It was 19. Um, And we have the prophets made more certain, and you will do well to pay attention to it. Not bad. It's a little bit better than the ESV there. Let me see something here. And so we have the prophetic word made more sure. The NASB gets it a lot closer to the Greek. And so we have the prophetic word made more sure to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star arises in your heart. So here's the contrast that Peter's making. We heard this voice. We saw the glory. We had this experience. But the prophetic word, the written word of God, that is even more sure and more certain than the experiences that we had. And he says you would do well to pay attention to these things as a lamp shining in a dark place, which is a reference then again to the Psalms. Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path, the psalmist says, right? So the idea being then is that experience, not more sure than the written word of God. Written word of God trumps experience. So here's the idea, is never as a Christian are we to let experiences be the thing that dictate what we believe. Because then you put your experiences being more sure and certain than the written Word of God. And if your experiences contradict the Word of God, you must believe God's Word over your experiences. I'll give you a a recent example. There was a um, a Roman Catholic who uh, did a lot of um, hospital visitation ministry. That was his thing. And in the course of his time in the hospital, he had the opportunity to interview people who were at one point clinically dead and then medically brought back from death and talk and pray with them about their, what they experienced when they were dead. And as a result of listening to their different experiences, he abandoned his belief in the doctrine of hell. Well, the, doesn't matter what these persons were, whether they're Catholic, atheist, or whatever. When they were experiencing death, they saw light, they heard voices, they had conversations, and he surmised from this, that has to be more sure and certain than what the written Word of God says. And so he abandoned his belief in the doctrine of hell. What becomes the Word of God for him then? These other people's experiences. And then you have another example. You have an, um, within academia... You have those who are philosophical materialists who are also scientists, and they follow what we call scientism. This is where science becomes an ism. Scientism basically says all there is is what you see. There is no God. It has this as a presupposition. And scientism teaches that the universe came into existence by random chance and that we're all the products of some primordial ooze where something, you know, some little critter crawled out of it and then evolved into who we are. Yet there is no scientific evidence for that. But what happens is, is that 
people who buy into this. Now this is the most popular view out there. Ask the average American, you know, where did human beings come from? We evolved. Since the majority believe it, to go against that, well, you know, you look like an idiot. Or a Christian. <laughs> yeah. Or both. They're, they're synonymous with some people, right? Yeah. And then there's Christians in the church who are uncomfortable with what Scripture says. And so they begin to adopt the worldview of scientism and try to find a way to make Christianity and evolutionary theory work together. You have two conflicting authority structures that are just doing this, and there is no way to bring them together, and there's a real simple reason why. is because the problem that we all face as human beings is that we're all born dead in trespasses and sins. We are all sinners. We have the law of God written on our heart. And when I preach the law, you all sit there and go, yeah, that's me. I see you nodding your head from up at the pulpit. I don't rat on you guys individually because I see you all doing it. Right? I do it too. And so you have the law of God written on your heart telling you that you're guilty and that you stand condemned. And the solution to this is the forgiveness of sins won by Christ. And there's clear passages that make it clear that Christ's death is specifically for those who are direct descendants of Adam and Eve. Without a, without a historical Adam and Eve, first parents that God created, there is no sin problem. Without a sin problem, there is no need for a crucified and risen Savior. Christianity just falls apart. All the churches that adopt and try to work these two things together, it always results in churches that are incapable of reproducing Christians. Always. Talk, that's, and that's ultimately what it means to be unfruitful. Unfruitful means you are not making disciples. You're not being salt and light. You've been desalinized. Does that make sense? Alright, so we go back to our text. So we ourselves heard this voice, verse 18, from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. All of the books that you have in the Bible, those are theonoustos. They are God-breathed. They are not the product of the author whose name is attached to it. The book of Isaiah contains the Word of God, not the philosophical, theological musings of a guy by the name of Isaiah. The Torah was given by direct revelation from God to Moses. And although Moses, everybody knows Moses is the author of the Torah, they do not contain Moses' speculative ideas and thoughts regarding theology. Does that make sense? For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Chapter 2. Now the fun begins. Remember, Peter's writing this. He's going to die very soon. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. Notice he doesn't say, potentially there could be, maybe at some weird time, some false teacher that might kind of sort of sneak in. No. Got a, got a lot of them. A lot of them. It's like a roach infestation right now. <laughs> really bad. There will be false teachers among you. By the way, you know why? Because we're the church militant right now. We are. 
We are called to take up the full armor of God, which we're going to hear about next Sunday, too, in our epistle reading. If we're to take up the full armor of God, who are the only people who, are, who necessarily must take on and put on armor? Answer, soldiers. Yeah, and yeah, and women, you're in this fight, too. We're all soldiers in this. We are not the church triumphant until the consummation of time. A good way to think about it, Christ's death and resurrection is D-Day. That's D-Day. Jesus makes a beachhead on that day. The war is already over at this point, but it still has to be fought. Does that make sense? The conclusion is certain. And here's the idea. Each generation of Christians, they are the soldiers then that are fighting working their way towards Berlin. The outcome is inevitable. The battles still have to be fought. And everyone who is a soldier in that army is a soldier of the present and future coming kingdom of God. That's us. So we are literally soldiers of the future. And I mean that. We are soldiers under a king whose kingdom right now is invisible but will be visible. And the battles that we are put into, we don't get to pick them. No soldier gets to pick their battles. The reason why we face this is because we are still the church militant. So false teachers, they're going to come among you and they will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them. This text, by the way, denying the master who bought them, rules out the Calvinist idea that Christ only died for the elect. You'll notice here it says that the heretics, that Christ also bought them. That's what the text says. Calvinists, are they're not correct on this. They believe that Jesus died only for those who are going to be saved. John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And here, Peter says that the heretics, they're denying Jesus, and Jesus actually also bought them. Which means they're totally foolish. Bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. That is a huge word right there. Sensuality. Let me show it to you in the Greek. Asalegia. Lack of self-constraint which involves one in conduct that violates all bounds of what is socially acceptable. Total self-abandonment. I'm, just, it's, I'm not even going to resist sin. I'm just going to go for it and pursue it with total recklessness. Yeah, right? Many will follow their self-abandonment, their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. Do you know how many times I have had to say, you know, you're a pastor. Yeah, I'm a pastor. I pastor a Lutheran church. And people go, oh, we know what that means. Yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, you mean you think I'm gay affirming, right? No, I'm not. Yeah. And, and you got to keep this in mind. You say the word Lutheran to most of the people out there. Lutheran means 
somebody who's in favor of abortion and supporting Planned Parenthood in the name of God, who blesses same-sex marriage and thinks Caitlyn Jenner is actually female. Yeah, I know. Bruce, that Bruce is really a female. Correct. And so many times I have to say, I'm not that kind of Lutheran and those aren't Lutherans. They're Lutheran in name only. It just bugs me. You know, sometimes if I'm, really, if I'm feeling particularly cranky, and I will confess that that happens from time to time, if somebody asks me what kind of church I pastor, I'll say a first century Catholic church. And they'll go, what's that? <laughs> and the reason I do it is because they don't have a category with that label. And it gives me the ability to not be misconstrued. Yeah, kind of sad. Well, <laughs> yeah, small c, small c, small c. And see, that's the other thing. You see, you know, as soon as you say the word Catholic, people go, oh, you're with the Pope. No, I'm not. You know? Or they'll see me in the clerical collar and say, he's a Romanist. You know? <laughs> uh, uh. There's just like no way around it. You know? and, and here's the thing. All of this confusion has been caused by whom? The devil. There was a time when Catholic had a good meaning, and it doesn't. There was a time when Orthodox had a great meaning, and it doesn't. There was a time when Evangelical actually had a great meaning, and it doesn't anymore. He hijacks all of our labels. And these people who are bringing in these destructive heresies, the way of truth is being blasphemed because of them. And in their greed, oh, over and again, the false teachers, you know what they're all about? Money. Money. In their greed, they will exploit you with what kind of words? False words. You mean not everybody who says they're a Christian is bringing me and teaching me the truth? Right. You mean not everybody who's on television is, is actually a straight shooter when it comes to God's Word? You are on television. And not everybody on the radio is either. You always have to listen with discernment. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle. Their destruction is not asleep. Notice that Peter puts them in the category of those who are headed to hell. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, that's preacher, by the way, a preacher of righteousness with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Pay attention. Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed by what? Fire in brimstone. That's a picture of what's coming. That's a picture of hell. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. If he rescued righteous Lot, and there it is, right there. You sit there and you, you know what happened to Lot after the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and you sit there and go, righteous. Scripture's clear on this. He is righteous by grace through faith. 
though greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked. Sensual conduct of the wicked. Now notice here, there's that term again. That term, aselgia, total self-abandonment. What was the sensual conduct of Sodom and Gomorrah? What does it mean to be a sodomite? Well, immoral, sexual. Yeah. Yeah, but a sodomite is one who is homosexual. So notice here, the sensual conduct of the wicked, same word, aselgeia, talking about those who, the heretics up here, secretly bring in destructive heresies, many will follow their aselgeia, sensuality. What's Peter prophesying here? Heretics who are going to bring in the same kind of teaching and try to wink at what the same kind of thing that we saw going on in Sodom and Gomorrah and put God's blessing on it. Same words. Sensuality, sensuality. Self-abandonment. And so the heretics are the ones, according to Peter, who are bringing in destructive heresies, who follow their sensuality just like the people of Sodom and Gomorrah had followed their sensuality and their conduct was accordingly, right? So what's Peter prophesying here? False teachers who are going to come in and say God doesn't care or God blesses same-sex marriage and all kinds of sexual immorality. That's called sensuality, aselgeia, self-abandonment. Peter here is prophesying the exact state of the church that we're in right now. Let's say Pastrix Frau Bluka decides to come visit and give us a message telling us that God is love and He has no wrath in Him. Pastrix Frau Bluka, um, has she spent time actually studying at the feet of Jesus for three years in the Judean wilderness? Is she an apostle? Who are we to believe? Peter or her? I'm going to go with Peter. I'm going with Peter. I think that's the safe bet. Because Peter, in this passage, is describing her. Right? And this is how we think. And Peter, he's he's an eyewitness to the resurrection of Christ. He saw him ascend into heaven. He was restored in his relationship with God and put in ministry after he denied Christ three times. I'm going to go with Peter on this one. So when Pastrix Flaubruka tells me that God blesses same-sex marriage, and I don't care how well she's liked in the community, she's wrong and she's telling us false words. And worst of all, like I said this morning, she's blaspheming. She's lying in the name of God. Rather than calling sinners to repent and to be forgiven, she's basically saying, God is love. He blesses this. This is beautiful. Is that person feeling the condemnation of God for their sin? No. They're being comforted with a false assurance. The result of that is that Pastrix Frau Bluka and all of the people listening to her go to hell. That's what's at stake here. Um, I was just thinking, you know, none of this is going to get through with 
get through the minds of those that are right now, you know, the culture. It boils really down to, we've got to start with that everybody believes that the Bible is true. Not even, it's not even, it's that isn't even universally accepted within churches that call themselves Christian. Well, they need to hear it too. I mean, what I'm saying is, you know, if I say, well, then this is, you know, Peter said this. Mm -hmm. Well, that gets nowhere. Oh, but see, the thing is, is that Peter is writing the very words of God. This is found in scripture. I know. And and you could say God says this. When I say Peter says it, notice I'm giving his apostolic office. But the reality is this. This was written by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. These are God's words, not Peter's at the end of the day. And the thing is, is that God's word, not mine, it's living and active. And so here's the idea, is is that when you're dealing with somebody who is an atheist or dealing with somebody who is an unbeliever or somebody who is confused about their Christianity, you kind of have to approach it differently. Right. I'd like to, if you would please approach it for me for those that uh, are... They are uh, a, a Lutheran. Okay. Of the ECLA Lutheran. Lutheran, right. Whatever. The ilk kind. Got it. The il- ilk. How, how do we talk to them? They are following their pastor. Oh, this is real simple. This is real simple. And, I'm, and I mean this. And you've got to be this forceful. What you're saying are words of men, not the words of God. Scripture is clear. Let me show you the passage that I quoted from this morning. Revelation chapter 22. And what they've done is they've omitted. Verse 18, 22, I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to them the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life. Here's what they're doing. They're taking away words of God. It's, it's not that they're saying... The Bible isn't, is, isn't God's Word. They're just saying certain parts of it are more God's Word than others. So when they get to the part where Paul says, and that's how they'll put it, a woman is not to exercise authority over a man in church. They'll say that was Paul's opinion and he was a misogynist, so we don't have to obey that. When it says wrath of God, well, that's Peter talking. That's not Jesus. So what they're doing is they're playing this game. And what you basically have to, call, have to call them out. You say, you are subtracting words of God and the message that you are giving people is perverted and wrong. You need to repent because God's going to throw your scrawny little butt in hell. And I mean that. Repent. Stop this nonsense and preach the truth. And ask Christ to forgive you for all of your heresies. And you have to say it that way. And... I guarantee you, you will not be invited to their birthday parties or Christmas parties. Okay? I'll just get written off. Yeah, you might. But here's the thing. They know what you're saying is true. That's the, that's the dirty little secret. Because Romans chapter 1 says they're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. And so here's the thing. Existentially, Scripture tells you what's going to happen inside of them. They're going to be mad at you. And the reason they're going to be mad at you is because you're saying the thing they're feeling. And the reason why they're getting away with this nonsense is because we now live in a politically correct society where the worst sin that you can commit is to actually hurt someone's feelings. How dare you, right, hurt their feelings? 
Their feelings need to be hurt. And as long as what they say doesn't hurt anybody else, it's okay. No, it's not. That's a lie from the devil. Right. And say it like that. I know it. Listen, this is going to make you seem like you're a raving maniac. They're going to call you John the Baptist. They're going to give you grasshoppers and say, would you like some honey with this? I mean, this is the kind of stuff they'll do. Right? But it has to be said because here's the thing. God's word is living and active. So you tell them, you preach the law. Call them out on their idolatry and their blasphemy. Call it what it is. Call them to repent. Tell them Christ bled and died for. Here's what's going to happen. They're going to go home. And they're going to be, I can't stand that Judy Santos. I can't believe she told me to. Okay. And inside the law of God written on their hearts going, she was right. She's telling you the truth and you know it. And here's how the internal dialogue is going to go. Shut up. I'm not going to admit that. But see, the thing is, is you've planted now a seed of the word of God. And God's word never returns to him void. Now, I don't talk about my radio program often here, but let me give you an example. Okay, I've been doing this long enough that we get a lot of emails, and the emails begin with this. Pastor Roseboro, I used to think that you were the biggest jerk in the whole wide world. I, first time I listened to your radio program, I thought you were the most arrogant, and then expletive, 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 and, and I couldn't stand you, but I had to listen again. And so the next time I listened to you, I heard you say, never to listen to me with an open mind, always listen with an open Bible. So I opened up my Bible and I set out to prove you wrong because I couldn't stand that you were going after my favorite pastor, preacher, teacher, whatever, right? And I'm calling, I'm, re, I'm emailing you to say thank you because when I searched God's word, I realized you were telling me the truth and the people I was listening to on television were lying to me. And now I found a good church where I'm hearing Christ crucified for my sins and the pastor is comforting me with the gospel and I can't tell you what a difference it's made in my life. But you know what? For each one of those, there's a lot of people out there who say, I'm just critical. That's the way it is. The truth is divisive. I'm not trying to be divisive. But it divides between light and darkness, between truth and error. And Christ has commanded us to proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins. This is Luke 24. So we have a message. We have a gospel. Our gospel is that Christ died for our sins and was raised again on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, which means we have to preach the truth. And that means both law and gospel, sin and grace, eternal life and hell. God's love and His wrath against sin. You can't get rid of them. The whole thing comes together. And it's hard. Because we all know. We all know. Try, we don't even have to try this. We know what's going to happen as soon as we do this. Why do we know that? Because you feel that same tension inside of you. You are a sinner as well. I am too. We know how our sinful nature bristles against the truth. This is not something you experience just because somebody out there reacted badly. You know this because you react badly internally. All right, let's keep reading. Okay. 
Verse 7, And if he, God, rescued righteous Lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. This is what we're experiencing too, is it not? So then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials, and we're going to have them, and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment, especially of those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. The two go together. How does a church get to the point where they affirm homosexuality? They, des- they despise the authority of Scripture. That's the thing that goes first, and then that opens the door to the defiling passions. Bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, by contrast, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, these false teachers like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong is the wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. Reveling in their deceptions. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed. They are accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing. This is a prophet for profit. P-R-O-F-I-T. But he was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Now watch this about the false teachers. They are waterless springs, mists driven by a storm. For them, the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved. For them, for speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. For if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. There goes once saved, always saved. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness and after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit. And the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Peter here is saying, figuratively, these are dogs and pigs. who return to their vomit and their mud. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. Scoffers within the church. Really? Does the Bible really teach hell? Love wins, man. Peace out, dude. These are scoffers in this church scoffing at the very word of God. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? Not out in the world, but in the church. Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuous as they were from the beginning of creation. 
for they deliberately overlook this fact. Notice that he's saying, he's putting the onus on them. They are deliberately doing this. They deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. But that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. And there it goes. Really, you believe in Noah and the flood and stuff? Yeah, Peter did. So did Jesus. Who are you? But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire and being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. And now we know the means by which God will destroy the earth on the last day. Not with water, but with fire. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some account slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This should give us hope. Christ is tarrying, taking His time, because it's not His will that any should perish, and that includes you and me. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, Then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and all the works that are done in it will be exposed. Yeah, all of this is going bye-bye. If all of this is going to be destroyed by fire, what's the point of setting up a monument to your memory on this planet? There's no need for it, is there? No one will remember you after that day anyway because you're nameless. Those who go to hell, their names are not written in the book of life. Their name is not written anywhere. Those who are in hell are nameless. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Notice eschatological godliness here. All of this is coming, so think it through. In light of the eschaton, in light of the end of this world and the universe and everything being burned up, how then are we ought to, how should we live our lives? Waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to His promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Where we will dwell. We are in Christ. No sin, no death, no heresy, no lies, no blasphemy. Therefore, beloved, since we are waiting for these things, be diligent, be found in Him without spot or blemish, and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all of his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and the unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. Notice Peter here says that Paul's writing are what? They're scriptures. Yeah, they're hard to understand, and some people twist them, but he says... Peter says that Paul's writings are Scripture. You see it? Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other Scriptures. Paul's writings are Scripture, according to Peter. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away by the error of lawless people. There it is. 
error of lawless people. Heretics are really lawless. And lose your own stability. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Grow in the grace and the knowledge. Where am I going to grow in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ? Bible. Only. Period. Head knowledge versus heart knowledge? Fooey. Nonsense. I'm going with Peter on this one. Because he's writing the very words that the Holy Spirit wants us to hear. And he pointed us to the Scriptures, the prophetic Word, as a lamp shining in the darkness. That's what's going to keep you from being coming unstable and unfruitful. So do you think Peter, in this final letter of his, thought that sound doctrine was important? For sure. Did he make a distinction between head knowledge and heart knowledge? Not really, no. He did talk about the importance of false teachers and true teachers, truth and error. And he spoke in very unflattering terms regarding those who were teaching false doctrine. They're lawless, following after sensuality, and the utter darkest, gloomiest parts of hell are reserved for them. Not only are we not to listen to them, we need to do everything we can to snatch as many people out of their clutches as possible and preach the truth to them. Because we too have been plucked from the fires of hell by God's grace and His mercy. We are not better. We are forgiven, helping people find the forgiveness of sins. All right, we'll pick this up next week. So what would you think? Love to get your feedback if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there at pirate Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>